So Julian, after the seminar was over, he pulled out a po big friggin' pocket knife on stage and started cutting the labels. And he's like, this is how we prevent it. And I was like, how the hell did you get that through security? <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, it is episode 220 of Bourbon Pursuit. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny. And last weekend at Bourbon and Beyond, it was nothing short of incredible. We can't say thank you enough to everyone that came up and said hi to us and joined us during our sessions. We met folks from bourbon societies from Chicago and St. Louis and everywhere in between. And if you haven't done so yet, please go check out our Instagram page as well as Bourbon and Beyond's official Instagram to see all the awesome pictures. I hope you feel some FOMO and you will be there next year. And another huge shout out to Fred Minnick for including us as a regular part of the bourbon programming. It was an awesome experience and anybody that has been there will tell you it was one for the record books. All right, it's news time, so let's dig into this. Last week, we announced the press release for the 2019 Buffalo Trace Antique Collection on our Facebook page. It's one of the most highly anticipated releases that are coming out from the fall season amongst our enthusiasts, and maybe it's also one of the most frustrating. But hats off to Sazerac for always keeping a level head and doing their best to price these at a $99 MSRP for the past few years. However, odds are it's going to be really hard to find that in most retail locations. We will be getting our sample soon and we'll be releasing a five-minute whiskey quickie when we get it recorded as soon as we can. New Riff is releasing a new heirloom rye called Balboa Rye. This was distilled in June of 2015 and will be four years old and bottled at 100 proof without chill filtration. Balboa Rye is one of the first specialties New Riff made back in 2015. Their corn farmer, Charles Fogg, had been growing heirloom rye on his family farm for many years. He's chosen a variety of what's called Balboa Rye. It's an heirloom grain which dates back to the 1940s as a rye variety that's popular in Indiana. He offered it to New Riff and they distilled it into rye whiskey, probably the first time in decades that Balboa has been made into whiskey and quite surely the only example on the market today. Balboa grain is a little smaller than modern varieties with a lower output per acre of planting. So there's just a little bit more tidbit or fact about what is Balboa rye. This will have a suggested retail price of $49.99. As a side note, I was actually able to sample this when we recorded a podcast with Ken Lewis of New Riff a few months ago, and I'm telling you, it's going to be worth getting a bottle. Very quality rye. Kentucky Owl is going to be releasing Batch 9 in October. The latest introduction from The Wise Man's Bourbon is the boldest, highest proof edition to date from master blender Dixon Deadman. It's coming in at 127.6 proof. This release is made with four different distillates from four different mash bills, including a 15-year-old, two different lots of 14-year-olds, a 12-year-old, a seven-year-old and a six-year-old distillate. Kentucky Owl Bourbon Batch 9 will be releasing 10,314 bottles into 42 U.S. states with a suggested retail price of $299.99. All right, so today's episode, it's got a lot of things wrapped up in one. This is the first release of two of the bourbon seminars that took place during bourbon and beyond. It's also the first time that we've had the Van Winkle family on the show before. Julian gives some history into the brand about where they were sourcing and the timeline of when it all became part of the Sazerac portfolio as well. 
Then some of the juicy details start emerging. One of Julian's daughters talks about the emergence of Pappy and Co. and how she is more of a tequila person and never really gets to drink any of the family bourbon. Then Preston talks about their involvement with the crackdown on the secondary market Facebook groups, which he implied that it was really there as a counterfeit measuring. Now, the whole time, Fred keeps a lot of good questions rolling that you're going to find very interesting here. And the second half of this podcast is a live recording that we did at Burn and Beyond on stage of the Community Roundtable. We share our thoughts on the festival and what we loved about it, as well as the news that broke the evening prior. There's almost too much going on, but it's timely and chock full of good nuggets that you're going to enjoy. Now, I will be the first to admit that the audio experience here is probably not going to be the best as everyone on stage was holding a handheld microphone. And when that happens, you know, it's going to be bumping into things. Uh, You're going to have some sound bleed that was coming from the other stages. And when we were recording this, it was feeding off of a soundboard so we could just get the best as that we could. So sorry in advance that, uh, you know, really, we hope that uh, the effort that we went to actually bring this to you is is worth it uh, as well. And of course, since uh, we weren't allowed to, there's not going to be any video available as a part of this as well. So you'll be able to just do a lot of listening. So if you're driving, then continue as normal or walking or working out, whatever it is. But if you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook, we'll get you next time. I promise. All right. Now you've got Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This past weekend was the conclusion of my Super Bowl. Bourbon and beyond. Leon Bridges, Allison Krauss, ZZ Top, Foo Fighters, John Fogarty, Zach Brown Band. Oh my gosh, there were so many great headliners, including Robert Plant himself from Led Zeppelin. And he didn't just come out playing his stuff from his bluegrass days. He was singing Led Zeppelin. Bourbon and Beyond was so amazing, and I am honored to be its curator and a co-founder in the festival. My baby is the Kentucky Gold Stage, and what happened on the bourbon workshops is absolutely historic. You had Jordan from Breaking Bourbon. You had Blake from Bourboner. Kenny and Ryan were up there. Carla Carlton, the managing editor for Bourbon Plus. Susan Riegler. Um, Fawn Weaver, Peggy No Stevens, on and on and on. So many wonderful, talented bourbon people were on that stage dropping knowledge, and it was just fantastic. The crowds were packed. You could not get a place to get a tasting, and people were just standing way in the back by the gates just listening to people talk about bourbon. This was unprecedented. Even in years past, we didn't draw these kinds of crowds around the bourbon workshops. And if you were one of those people and you were there listening to the Van Winkles talk about their family heritage, you learned something so, so breaking for like our little world, this little bubble that we call bourbon. And that was when Preston Van Winkle said that his family worked with Facebook legally to take down the secondary markets. I was stunned by it. But I want to give you some context into this whole format of the festival. The Kentucky Gold Stage is to the left and about a half a football field to three quarters of a football field away from, or about a football field away from 
the main stages. And while we are talking, musicians are playing. So there's sound bleed into us. Now, because the panelists have their, are speaking into the microphone, the people in the audience can hear them. But on the stage, we often, depending on the musician, we can hear more of the music than some of the panelists to our left or right. And also we were instructed by our stage manager to really get into the microphone and not yell, but speak very thoroughly and deeply. So the recording you're about to hear has, it sounds much, much different than what it was like for me on stage. So I was instructed to speak loudly into the microphone. And so it's gonna sound like I'm screaming a little bit, but really I'm talking to the crowd, not necessarily speaking to be recorded. So that over excitement, that's a stage voice. That's, that's kind of my way to speak to the crowd. And the Van Winkles, you know, they're also speaking a little louder, but they're not as loud as me. So as you will soon learn. So the, this was recorded by Bourbon Pursuit at the Bourbon and Beyond Festival. And it's definitely a voice I would not use for normal recording. With that said, I have been working with the Van Winkles for two years to get them on stage at Bourbon and Beyond. And last year we got rained out, so they couldn't come on. This year they donated three bottles of Pappy Van Winkle and told us a lot about their struggles coming through through the bourbon business and how he almost gave it up. But it wasn't until Preston Van Winkle started talking about how he feels about the secondary market and the counterfeiters and the flippers that my jaw just dropped. I was not expecting that on the stage, not at all. So sit back, enjoy, and listen, and just know that this was, this was recorded around a couple thousand people. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you have an idea for Above the Char, hit me up on Twitter or Instagram, at Fred Minnick. Again, at Fred Minnick. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean, instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order.
Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. My name is Jackie Zyke, and I'm the master taster for Old Forester. And my dear friend, Fred Minnick, has actually um, been so nice to let me emcee this stage for Burning Beyond this year. And he's a man who has done so much for this bourbon industry, and he really is shaping how we are experiencing bourbon today. Obviously, look at all of us here together. Let's hear it for Fred Minnick. And I mean, he's the only one that wears an ascot when it's 100 degrees outside, so, you know. Just for that alone, you deserve an applause. Thank you very much. It's because I have a very ugly neck. <laughs> well, Jackie, I am so excited about this uh, particular seminar. Look at all the people who are here to, get, to hear the story about Pappy Van Winkle. All right, joining me on the stage, Carrie Greener. Carrie, come on. Pappy Coe, the son of Julian Van Winkle. Her brother, Preston Van Winkle. He's the guy who gets all the hate emails when uh, somebody can't get Pappy. And the men, the myth, the legend, Julian Van Winkle, who brought his grandfather's name back. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to one of the greatest palates of the 20th century, Julian Van Winkle. So, Van Winkles, thank you very much for taking the stage with me at Bourbon and Beyond. Our and pleasure. I met you backstage, and I was so disappointed in all of you. 95 were, degrees, Fred. Were they drinking bourbon? No. No. Were they drinking water? No. no. Were they drinking Irish whiskey, scotch, uh, brandy, or a beer? No. What, what were they drinking? Vodka. It's hot. <laughs> I, Julian... If Pappy had known that his grandson and great-grandson and great-granddaughter were drinking vodka before they were going on the stage to talk about their family legacy, what do you think he would say? Smart, smart guy. He, I dr I'm not a, I'm a when, I, when I take a drink, I like a lot of flow into my throat when it's hot. So if I did that with bourbon or some other brown spirit, it would be an ugly afternoon or ugly evening. So uh, vodka's a little kinder to the brain than uh, some of the other whiskeys. So, All right, well, the vodka's gotten too much stage time as it is. Exactly. So let's move on. I want to talk about what it was like, what it was like growing up in the Van Winkle household because your dad was out trying to promote American whiskey when nobody wanted to drink it. What was it like seeing your dad out on the, sh on the pavement trying to sell whiskey? Well, it wasn't e easy at all, actually, looking back. It's, he has scars on his head in... Uh, <laughs> from what? Warehouses, right? Yeah, from warehouses. So when we were little, you know, he'd leave really early in the morning. He was into distilling um, the bourbon down in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. And so um, 
It was not anything pretty, what you might imagine. It was no Camelot from back at the Stitzelweller days. It was um, full-on grunt work. And, uh, yeah, he would sprain his ankle, and he would leave early and come home late. And luckily on the weekends, we would go down there to Lawrenceburg with him. So for, for us, it was an amazing childhood. Uh, he wasn't gone all the time because luckily we were able to be there with him um, and enjoy the, the bottling plant. And uh, it was right on a creek in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. It was like a dilapidated building, but he was just working hard all day, every day, making it work. And we were there playing along with him. So. Now, Preston, um, I know you pretty well. Did you ever sneak in there and, and uh, steal a little whiskey from your dad when you were growing up? Steal whiskey, like, from the liquor cabinet or from the bottling hall? So there are multiple places you were stealing whiskey. <laughs> no. uh, actually, uh, by the time I was able to appreciate it, um, I was, it was, there wasn't really anything to steal. It was under lock and key pretty well, and I was uh, working for Dad, so... Um, but uh, I do remember, <laughs> uh, I do remember pinching a, a a bottle here or there of some some old stuff that was um, it it wasn't anything good. It was stuff that was ultimately sold in Japan because that was the only place you could get rid of it. Uh, and now it's selling for five thousand dollars on the secondary market. There, there's none of it left, thankfully. Um, we had our family had nothing to do with the distillation of that particular par- product, but uh, the the labels were popping off of the bottles, and um, they had been in the in the warehouse for uh, a good many years. Uh, but in terms of stealing booze from Dad, um, my sisters were not quite as good at it. Oh, frozen bottles of vodka yeah, in the we were freezer. Still drinking vodka back <laughs> then. Oh, okay. Into all right. Let, let, all right. Let's just go ahead and have. You like, brought it up, Fred. Is <laughs> yeah. all I gotta say. <laughs> it's true. That's we fair. Drink, we drink bourbon if it was a cool September day, but it's just not that yet. So all right, we're getting there. Okay, all right. So Julian, did you ever have uh, you 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 were on the road a lot trying to make Pappy Van Winkle or Old Rip Van Winkle work? What was it like? What was it like in bourbon in the 1980s and 1990s when nobody wanted it? Well. The- <laughs> It was, um, it was a struggle. My dad, um, of course, started working for him in 1977. And at that point, the bourbon part was not popular, so all the distilleries put their product into canners. Um, and some ugly, some fantastic, but that's what it took with, to sell the whiskey was put it in a figurine or an apothecary bottle or something. So that was the hard sell is to get a... Uh, a liquor store in Prospect, Kentucky, or wherever, to pay eight bucks wholesale for a bottle of whiskey back then, which would sell for twelve or fifteen, maybe. So that was the hard part. And to sell a bottle of whiskey, just our old Rip Van Winkle was next to impossible. But um, it was bottle by bottle and and so forth. So it was uh, it was it was quite something. It was not it was an uphill battle to say the least. Now you also. You also used your whiskey as currency. Like you would, you would barter with it. You would trade uh, a couple bottles or a case for a magazine advertisement in those days. Yes, um, we um, fellow that we end up meeting through the horse business in Lexington uh, did some advertising. He was from New York, 
Um, he came down to the distillery and, and found out about her whiskey because his customer, who was a horse farm owner, uh, enjoyed the whiskey and found out about it. And uh, he actually <laughs> he bought a case from the distillery and took a case of whiskey with him on the airplane and put it in the overhead. So that was hilarious. Um, but we did barter for advertising because I didn't have any money to pay for advertising. So um, uh, we did barter, which was, it worked. It was all I got to say. Would you say... Would you say that there was ever a moment that you were in jeopardy of closing the company? I would say that would happen about once a month. Wow. Um, seriously, I, and I'm not being facetious. I would say that um, the timing was perfect on this. Um, but um, it was, I, would, I was buying whiskey by the barrel and occasionally the distilleries would turn, would change their mind and not sell me any barrels. Um, and I was buying whiskey from several different distilleries, as many distilleries did back then. There was a lot of whiskey being traded around. The label that you bought under that distillery was not necessarily from that distillery. And that still happens today, obviously, too. But um, I did a lot of, uh, got nixed on buying barrels, so I was turned down and I thought, well, this is it, I'm done here. But it's the only thing I knew how to do. Um, my dad wanted me, wanted me to work for a banker or sell insurance or something, and I said, well, that's no fun. I'm just going to stick with this. And um, it was more tenacity than anything because I had no other choice and uh, just stuck with it. And Lord, obviously, it kind of worked out. Well, what do you all think? Are you all glad that he stuck with it? Yeah. Now, I think... I am. <laughs> Preston definitely is. Did you... As a child, did you feel that stress that your father was going through? Uh, that's hard to say. Um, I could tell that he was overworked a lot of times, but at the same time, um, even with the early mornings and late nights, he usually made it home for dinner um, a lot of times with uh, a sack of sliders or... Um, a box of uh, club sandwiches from Men's Cafe down on Story Avenue. Um, but he usually made it home for dinner. So I, I don't guess I felt the stress so much because when we'd go down and help him in the bottling hall, it was, um, it was fun. Um, he made it fun. We helped fill bottles, put labels on. Um, I remember one day filling like a thousand Statue of Liberty 50 ml decanters uh, with a soda fountain gun um, with my cousins. Um, so yeah, the stress was kind of taken stress. out of it. And he always made time for uh, going to Louisville Redbirds games and Louisville Thunder games and the, what are the, the, uh, the hockey team, the uh, River Frogs. <laughs> uh, so we always had... Um, he always made time for us as kids, so I don't know that I felt the stress. I, I feel like the only time I really realized that things were getting tough was when a group of Japanese buyers came over, um, and like if they didn't have a good time, that was it. Like that could have been oh, wow. the end of the road. Um, but they had a great time. We took them and played golf. I I caddied for them, and it was. Uh, uh, one of the most fun, funniest experiences of my life, but um, uh, that was probably the only time that I, I really recognized that things could be a little bit 
you know, on thin ice. So, Carrie, did do you feel like your dad ever brought the the work problems home? No, and I think I we actually learned that from him. It's like you just work hard, put your head down during the day, and then you try to cut it off at night. And yeah, so we just knew he worked hard, but did not feel that. Like Preston said, he was he was there the night and on the weekends, and I never never felt anything like that. I think that's a testament to you, Julian. I, I admit, I bring work home. I It's hard. It's really, really hard. Well, I think, too, when you're just, when you don't have any other way of being and it's all you know, that you don't really have any other way of doing it. So it was the only way he knew how, and luckily it was um, being a dad and being um, a great family member and just working hard. It's like all... And, the whole theme here for me and all of this is like it's all you know, it's all you do, and when you work hard and you just do what's right and real, it all works out. Now, Carrie is one of three. She is a triplet. And I've actually never asked, uh, I've never asked Julian this. Has there ever been a moment with your triplets that you mistook one of them for the other? <laughs> Mostly when they're walking down the hall from the back, I, I would always say, you know, Carrie, Luis, and all, whatever, and it would be the other one, because from the front, since I've known them since day one, it's a little easier, but I did have mistaken them, and um, uh, and, and the, on the phone, I, that com- phone conversation, especially, you know, in the last several years, uh, Carrie lives in Idaho, and everybody lives here now, but, um, but they will call up, and I think I'm talking to Louise, and it's Carrie or something, so it's, it's, it is a little confusing. We, um, just a real quick story. Went to Target one day, and they were really small, and I'm checking out, and this little fellow's checking me out, and he's going, is that three twins? Because <laughs> it's hard to describe, you know, what you're looking at, because triplets are a little different than twins. A lot of twins, but it, uh, we did get them confused. We had a magic marker on, on one of the girls when they were first born on their heel. Not to mention he was 30, and he had four children. He had Preston, and then within a year and a half, he had three more and looking back at age 30 you know to see what he was able to do with his career and raise children and do it so gracefully please give your mother some credit for the raising of the children yeah Yeah. thank god he had her as a guy she should have come so she could have heard that but but she's babysitting some grandchildren yeah you you just mentioned that you were on the verge of closing your company and then Something happened in the 1990s. You got, you got a perfect score, and everybody wanted Pappy. Tell me about that, that big moment of when, when you kind of turned the corner, when you knew that you wouldn't have to close your doors. Tell me about that, Julian. Well, the, the, the story was we sent our distributor in Chicago, unbeknownst to me, sent a sample to the Beverage Tasting Institute for the beverage taste, uh, the world beverage tasting, what do they call it, the uh, beverage tasting? Uh, beverage tasting, tasting Institute. Instit- world be- world whiskey competition or something, and um, we got a 99, and um, they published that in a, wine, in a wine magazine called The Wine Enthusiast, and that got out into the trade, and then our phones started ringing, and that was really kind of the kickoff of, um, I mean, you all know, wine, vodka, whiskey, anything, um, when it gets a good rating, you want it, you want it even though it has, you have no idea if you'll like it or not, because that guy over there might like something, and that guy over there might like something, and they're completely different tasting. 
but um, we got lucky and um, uh, got some publicity, and that's kind of when it started. So the phone started ringing, and um, and it kind of not really took off. But that was the that was the uh, the, the uh, genesis of this whole thing, I think. When that when that which, which was pure luck, really, as far as getting in that tasting. And I, a lot of this is luck, believe me. And when what was what was the move over when you when you chose to partner with uh, Buffalo Trace? What was your thinking behind uh, going to partner with Buffalo Trace? Well, they actually knocked on my door a year before we hooked up and wanted because they owned they owned one of our brands, W.L. Weller, which my granddad used to work for Mr. Weller here in Louisville, and um, Diageo had owned the brands. They ran all those brands brands into the uh, ground pretty much because they didn't sell well for them so they sold them all off and buffalo trace bought wl weller and uh, they had had it since 1999 so in 2001 they asked me to do a joint venture with them and i wasn't interested because i've been working by myself for myself except for my son uh for a long time so um it was foreign to me to work with anybody for anybody and not especially for anybody um but uh, I finally smartened up after a little uh, discussions with them, and uh, I knew that I wasn't making whiskey for the future. Um, I was buying aged bourbon, which was available back then, but down the road, it's the way you have to think in the bourbon market. Our business plan is 23 years long. I don't know what you all do, but we have the longest business plan next, next to a lumber person who grows an 80-year-old white oak tree. Uh, it's pretty incredible. So. I needed future whiskey to put down for the future. So that's why mainly we hooked up with them. Plus they were making Weller and uh, same formula as ours, which is still our, my grandfather's formula. So um, it, was a, it, was a, it was a great moment. So it, uh, and it's been a great relationship. And, um, and you know, with their, as soon as we hooked up with them, the marketing and the, and the sales force and the promotion, um, that's, you know, it's a little bit overdone, I guess, because we really don't need to market this brand. But um, uh, we did back in the day, and it's uh, it's taken off, and um, uh, it's 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 been incredible. It really has. But uh, you know, no uh, Sazerac Buffalo Trace has really been a big part of it. And it doesn't hurt that Harlan Wheatley's the best distiller of American whiskey out He's there. He's pretty good. He's won a lot opinion. of awards for he sure. He wins a lot of awards. Yeah, he runs he runs a tight ship. He's actually a real master distiller, you know. Yes, it's not it's not it's not a title that was given to him easily. No, he's, he's not a marketer. Sure. So, yeah. what one of the things with 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 the rise of Pappy and everybody, you know, standing in long lines, there's 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 been a little bit of vitriolic kind of nature come your way. And Carrie, you and I have talked about it this sometimes. Uh, how does that how does that make you feel when you see like people uh lamenting about the fact they can't get a a glass of pappy or you know they're throwing out some kind of crazy conspiracy theory don't get about, me started well that's why we're here i'm here to get you started easy carrie hold your <laughs> hold your listen i don't work for the distillery just so you know so i can't say too much notice i asked carrie this question <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'll just say I have my own company that I started six years ago with my sister's Pappy and Company, which is the merchandise side of our of our business. And um, so we get a lot of inquiries just just because we're obviously within the the family realm of business. And so um, there's a lot of haters out there, 
and it's very easy to respond to those haters. And my, what I say is that, you know, I think when people understand the nature of the business and the nature of our brand, it becomes very clear that, you know, I would love for you to be an appreciator and a respecter of the brand and understand it. And so I think the easiest thing to tell people is that if you think about, you know, the youngest age that we bottle is 10 years and it goes up to 23 years. So not many other people have to to plan ahead in that kind of uh, increment. So when I think they realize that this is not an intentional thing that we've done, we haven't intentionally held back product to increase demand. We have not worked with, or they have not worked with a marketing team to create anything. It's literally creating a product that you believe in and the rest happens naturally and organically. So we're no cult brand that we've tried to create. It's literally like we've said from the very beginning, putting your head down and working. And so when people really understand that and see that it's nothing about marketing, you know, the world we live in is so fake full of just creating a brand and creating this fake story behind it and going out there and selling it. It's like, we are caught up in that. And so I can understand that maybe if you don't know enough about the brand, that that's your first instinct is to completely judge and say, oh, it's, you know, they're, it's intentional and you learn a little bit more. It's very easy to then be an appreciator of the brand. Now, Preston, you actually deal with the haters on a regular basis. What's it like? Daily. Um, there is There are a lot of misconceptions with our brands. There's a lot of, uh, <sighs> there are a lot of people that I guess are, uh, for lack of a better term, butthurt that they can't get our product, so um, they would rather spew hatred than just accept the reality that this has happened organically. It's not, um, it's, it wasn't an, an intentional thing that we've created, artificial demand. People accuse us, accuse us of creating artificial demand to increase prices. Well, we're not the ones benefiting from these crazy aftermarket prices. It's the retailers that are benefiting. It's the the people that are illegally buying and selling uh, via Craigslist and Facebook and stuff that are benefiting. It's not us. Um, and it would be asinine to <laughs> hold back product um, that we could profit from selling uh, in order to, again, artificially create demand. It's just, it is what it is. We're not making chairs or fidget spinners. Uh, we're making 10 to 23-year-old bourbon, so it, it takes time. Uh, nobody could have anticipated the explosion in demand uh, for, for bourbon in general, but especially premium bourbons and our bourbons especially uh, 15, 20 years ago when it would have mattered from a production standpoint. So we basically got caught with our pants down. Um, so we can't, we can't catch up instantly. We're we are trying to catch up. We've got more 10, 12, and 15-year-old than we've ever had, but it's still a drop in the bucket compared to demand. Demand is going up like this while supply is kind of ratcheting up yeah. at a slower pace. And we are increasing production every year, but we're doing so at a um, what, you would, what most would consider a pretty conservative rate. Because if this whole thing goes kaput, if this whole bourbon boom goes bust, we don't want to be sitting on top of a lake of whiskey we can't sell. We've been on that side of the coin, and that's basically what 
forced my grandfather to sell Stitzelweller in the early 70s was nobody cared about bourbon at that point. So we don't want to be on that side of the coin. And actually, Julian, your father gave an interview to a North Carolina newspaper in the 1970s saying that if you think you can can sell 5,000 bottles, make 2,000. If you think you can sell 10,000, make 5,000. So it seems to be like uh, very much ingrained in the DNA of the Van Winkles to make less than the demand is. It is. um, It's obviously when you're when you grow up with something and that's in the back of your head, um, you know, Pappy always said, find bourbon, profit, you know, yada, 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 but always find bourbon, profit, loss, whatever. But you, I don't care what you do. Um, and that's, I can't, I got to keep my mouth shut here a little bit. But um, with any product, if you make too much of it and the quality goes down, um, your, your price that you're going to get for it also goes down. And if you keep the quality up there and the quantity reasonable, um, I think your business plan is a lot better. Um, you know, we're comfortable with the business we have. Um, we don't want to, we don't have, and it's different. We don't have stockholders behind us. You're looking at the stockholders of some of them, some of them right here in our company, all three or four or five or six of us. Um, it's, it, you, you, you know, you have, we don't have anybody to answer to. So that's the problem with the big companies. They have to make money. Um, quality goes down. So that's uh, something we're not gonna, we're not gonna do that. So what, what, is the, what is the relationship with Buffalo Trace from a business perspective? Can they dictate to you your whiskey supply, where you store your barrels? It's complicated, but basically we, we own the brand. We own 51% of our brand. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a joint venture, so it's all a, one big happy family so if there's big business decision to be made we have the final word on it so when they're when they're distilling the weeded bourbon recipe is it pappy van winkle day and they put it in there or is it all weller and pappy van winkle day and then you guys get barrels and you just choose where how does that work wheat production is wheat production and then within the buffalo trace campus there are certain warehouses there are certain spots within certain warehouses that have shown over decades uh, that they produce the best finished product, um, especially at our age statements. Um, So we get first crack at the best of the best of the barrels. So when a, a barrel is produced at Buffalo Trace with the weeded recipe, it's not earmarked necessarily for Weller or 10-year-old Rip or 15-year-old Pappy or 23-year-old Pappy or whatever. It, it's more about where it ends up in a warehouse based on um, space constraints. And with they're building two new warehouses a year for the next 10 years um, to the tune of about $1.2 billion. Uh, so so uh, what I just capacity. heard there is that William LaRue, William LaRue Weller cash drink was not good enough to be Pappy. Not necessarily. No, that's not what I heard. Okay, well. Not necessarily. (laughs) Um, Gary's giving me the evil eye. There are certainly barrels that we reject that on their own would be just fine. Yeah. But they're just not up to our, I don't want to say standards, but our palates are very laser focused on um, 
our products. People have described both of us as having these amaz amazing palettes. But, That's why we need to get involved. Uh, it's, it's more that our palettes are laser focused on um, what we produce. And what I, we have produced and what we like and what we like. I, 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 we're very fortunate that other people seem to enjoy the same things that, that we like. I do, I do believe that there is, a, there is a gift in the palate of being able, to blend, being able to mingle two or three barrels or five barrels or whatever to, to make a batch. A lot of people can pick a single barrel, but to create like a batch, that's a gift. That's a gift. Julian, does Preston have the, does he have the touch, the same touch as you? He's, uh, he's always had it, and I noticed that from the get-go, but um, you will find this out someday. As you get older, your flavor uh, ability to smell and taste goes away a little bit. So, um, and, of course, we're all different. Our DNA is different, but um, he's really good at it, and um, you know, I'm thankful to have him and the staff at Buffalo Trace who do it every single day, taste different different whiskeys but um it's quite a it's quite an art and he's got a very he's got a got a nice little palette what about carrie have you brought her in on the fold not yet but uh she's i think she's she's looking forward to getting in there someday <laughs> what do we got to do carrie what, what do we got to do to get in on the turkey first i don't know but <laughs> she lives in idaho that's a big a problem oh it I, starts with moving to idaho for to from idaho to kentucky don't louise live here so that's true you could get two of the triplets yeah, if you all died tomorrow, what would you do? You know, we got to start oh, learning this. Oh, there you this. go. Thanks. <laughs> Carrie, okay. do you got a plan we Louise need to know about? Tequila. <laughs> no, I don't. I just, you know. I'm the more gonna... she talks, the more I think she's going to bump us off. Yeah. <laughs> I just, you know, I just know we have three valuable palettes on the sidelines. We can always learn, learn that palette. You know, I do. It is. We're just all joking. So here, here's an idea. Here's an idea. You could you could get uh, you could come out with a new brand, call it Triplet Van Winkle. Tequila. Tequila. <laughs> They're all tequila drinkers before they drink bourbon. You know, Triplet Tequila brand. Oh, uh, so I out. think therein carries why you're not being asked to join these panels. I'm just ruling that. <laughs> not any good. It doesn't, it doesn't taste like tequila. <laughs> In 2013, I was a I was a rookie judge on the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. I tasted this bourbon, and we tasted a lot of different bourbons, and I remember tasting one, I was like, I bet that's Pappy, it's really fucking good, I hope it doesn't win, even though I voted for it to win, because of the Pappy hype, right? I didn't want more Pappy hysteria. And sure enough, it won. It was the Pappy Van Winkle, 15-year-old. This happens to be my favorite expression that you all put out. Is it yours too? Carrie, do you have a favorite expression of Pappy that's not She's tequila? A tequila I honestly, I love bourbon. I love our bourbon, but I honestly don't get to drink enough of it to be able to give a really strong opinion on that. But she still would like to be a taster. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot to learn, but I do appreciate it very much. I think I know someone you can learn from. Right, right. So you don't have a favorite expression of your family's uh, heritage? Like I, I mean, honestly, truthfully, I, um, I don't get to drink it enough to really be able to pick up on that. I do know that I think Her recently, husband drinks it all before she gets a chance to. I think I've had, most recently, like the 20-year, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm like, 
no wonder people love it. I, like, that is insanely delicious. It's like dessert to me. And so I think I probably would go not for the 15 year because it's a little hot for me. So I'd probably go with the 20 year if I had to give it a Okay. Answer. Well, there we go. We, we've, so we've I do got actually a have something to say. There we go. So uh, in the bourbon business, they like to say, when, when you ask them how should you drink it, they usually say, drink it however you like. So I'm going to ask everyone up here, is it okay to drink Pappy 23-year-old with Coca-Cola? Maybe Mexican Coke. It's pretty good with that. <laughs> but no. No, That's but pushing it. That's pushing it, exactly. But I don't know why you would... Fred, what are you if, doing? Why, why would... <laughs> Yes, if, if you've got... They you've warned got me a, they were going to push back. If you've got a, a few cases of 23-year-old Pappy and you got the money to burn, hey, whatever. But otherwise, why would you, you want to do that? You could get a, a perfectly good bottle of four-year-old bourbon to mix with your Coke. I'll just say that I guess a lot but of other people besides 20. us take it a lot more seriously than we do. And so I'll just say, you know, people, especially with Pappy and Company, we make cocktails and mixed drinks and people kind of can give us a bad rap for that. It's like, you know what? We love old fashions. We love Manhattans. We like bourbon cocktails. We like all kinds of mixed drinks. And so there's no harm in that. So people definitely will be will say that to mix anything with any of our products, even ice, is wrong, but it's so not wrong. What's the future for, uh, for Old Rip Van Winkle? Can we see a distillery? Are we going to continue on the same model? Are you talking to Dad and Preston or me? <laughs> Are you going to start a distillery? It's way too expensive. We're good. Thanks. <laughs> I would have done it a long time ago, but... Um... You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I would like to, but um, we definitely could change some distilling at Buffalo Trace to differentiate the Buffalo, I mean, the Van Winkle from the Weller, for sure. Um, we're working on that, so um, to be continued. But um, uh, it's, a, it's a huge proposition and tons of money, and you can go broke aging whiskey for 23 years is all I got to say. So... Um, there's a lot of craft distillers out there, and um, they will soon find out what it takes to hold on to whiskey for a long period of time. It's well, incredible. Well, not only that, but, like, starting a distillery, you're looking at, like, an entirely new um, machine making your product, and you're like, it's a gamble. You know, who knows what's going to be any good? Exactly. Yeast, distilling equipment, it all changes everything. So people say, well, just make it over there. We made it there. You can't do that. Water, yeast, equipment, copper, stainless. It's a lot of variables. So staying on the, uh, the future of Pappy, uh, we talked about pricing a little bit. And I was just at an auction. Uh, I emceed an auction at the Speed Museum on uh, Thursday where a lot of Pappy went for $17,500. A little bit of change there that someone wanted to spend on some Pappy. And... The market continually shows that it will it will bear. Uh, you could triple your your SRP, and the market would still accept it. Is there any thought about increasing your price, your SRP? We've um, we've taken price increases um, like every other year. Has kind of been our model um, at a 
again, a pretty conservative rate. Um, our feeling is these brands were built on the backs of people who were willing to spend the, the money on a, on a product that um, was more expensive than the average bourbon. Um, and now it's gotten to the point where, you know, when 50 or 60 or 80 bucks was kind of the top end that people were willing to spend on a bourbon, um, those people are now spending 200, 300, 400, 500 dollars on a bottle. Um, we don't want to price those people out of the market for our products. Um, so, but yes, still, we there's have, still we a slim increased. chance they're going to get it, though. Yeah, we've one we've retailer. We've actually just we've taken a, a very minor price increase that will hit stores this year. It's still nothing compared to the Craigslist prices and the aftermarket prices, whatever. Um, but it's the assholes in the retail shops and on Craigslist that are making all the money, not us. So if if they're going to charge that, they're going to charge whatever they're going to charge. We can't control it legally anyway. We're doing okay. Um, we're going to continue to price where we see, where we think that the suggested retail price should be um, and hope that retailers will fall in line. We've, uh, we in Buffalo Trace have taken some steps to um, kind of curb the, the secondary market. We, what steps? What, what steps have you taken? Um, do you feel like there are a lot of a lot of dollars being thrown um, from a legal standpoint at uh, getting Facebook groups shut down. So you 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 all list. you all contributed to shutting down the Facebook secondary markets. Yeah, uh, it's illegal. First, firstly, it's illegal, uh, and secondly, it it makes it harder for these folks to get a bottle at a fair price, which has never know, sat right with us. You also don't know what you're getting in a bottle because there are right. tons of counterfeiters. So if you take one thing away from this little loud conference here that we're having today, um, thank God our music is good. Um, if you buy something on the secondary market, you cannot guarantee what's going to be in that bottle. So our business was spread on word of mouth. If you will please spread this one thing, don't buy on the secondary market because you cannot guarantee what's in that bottle because the counterfeiters are really good. If they would put their effort into a legal deal, they'd be billionaires, but they choose to be illegal. And um, you it don't costs, know what you're going to get. It costs so. 1500 bucks to get one of those capsule spinners, um, and it costs probably another three or 400 bucks to get a box of those capsules, foil capsules. And if you're selling $0 whiskey for uh, three grand, it's a pretty good investment if you're, if you're a counterfeiter. And they've been, you can get on eBay right now and find uh, empty bottles of Pappy. And They're going to be filled someday. Yeah, so, those bottles going to uh, be filled for sure. Anybody got a good eBay account I can partner with you on for these two bottles? <laughs> I was joking. I'm going to take those joking. two and <laughs> smash them. I was, I was joking. Actually, I can tell you weren't laughing about that. You, you yeah, really take yeah, this seriously. Very seriously, yeah. yeah. I actually had a, uh, a consumer email me the other day and said, hey, I found uh, a case of empties. Um, can I send them to you for a second life? 
we don't have any, there's nothing we can do with them legally. So I just asked them to either scrape off the labels or smash the bottles to avoid them ending up on the secondary market because there are countless uh, instances of people selling a bottle on eBay and that exact same bottle ending up on Craigslist or in a Facebook group uh, for sale again full. Selling an empty and then that full bottle reappears. If you, if you could... If you could be in a room with a known counterfeiter, one-on-one, who was reselling, what would you say or do to that person? I would get arrested <laughs> at the end of it. Uh, it would, yeah, it'd be ugly. Wow. Um, I would it, force it, a gallon of shiitake or. Cachaça. Cachaça. Cachaça, Brazilian, Brazilian Down his throat, or her throat. Soju. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just I'd don't like him, cachaça. I'd make him drink the whole bottle of whatever rot gut they put in the bottle and hope that it was poisonous. Wow. And we're, we're, like, we're deadly serious about this. It is we're just trying bad. to protect our customers, yeah. that's all. We're trying to protect the consumer. And the, we, we put out a, what we feel is a high-quality product, and for somebody else to um, benefit from that assumed quality when there is none is disheartening. I I hear that. You know, the the other side is for a lot of, like, consumers, you know, there's a lot of people who will never get in reach or be able to buy a bottle. It's just very difficult to buy one. And, you know, those secondary markets, you know, for some people that provided an opportunity in some ways. I mean, what do you think about that? It gave... In some ways, it could have been like an extension. If, if it's real, though, right? If if yeah. if, if it's but real. That's the problem. So, like, do you do you feel like there's a solution there? Because it, because I know you want to protect customers, but there's not a lot of happy to get to the customers, and that's that's been the hard part. It's a fine line. It really is. We we hate to turn down. You know, I, I hate it that people don't get to enjoy our whiskey. I said, well, go to a, a bar where they sell it for a decent price. You can try. You know, because it's more sometimes more available in a bar. But um, it's a it, it is a fine line. We have to tread there. So we're just trying to convince people to be careful and not go to the secondary market. Because um, I mean, you know, the the thing in uh, Costa Rica or somewhere or Haiti or somewhere was. Um, Somewhere in the Caribbean, there were the people were poisoned. By yeah, there's people literally dying. Central America, I think. You know, a mini bar. It was poisoned. So that's the that's the bad part. Well, it I'd happens have... every day all over the world. Somebody dying from illicit alcohol. It just doesn't get reported because it wasn't an American tourist at a yeah. all inclusive resort in the Caribbean. It happens every single day in the UK, India, Russia, all over the world. Well, I've been giving the, that sign, which means I have to close it here. And we were just kind of getting some good stuff. And Julian, I always love being on the stage with you. You're a fun person to talk to on the stage. Preston Carey, I think this is the first time we've interacted like this. And you guys were awesome. How about it, ladies and gentlemen, for the Van Winkles? Thanks, Fred. Thank you all for coming. I will say one thing. There will never be a vodka and beyond. I just put that in your pipe and smoke it. Thanks, Julian, for the for the vodka hate there. (laughs) 
Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bourbon and Beyond. This right here is the Bourbon Pursuit Roundtable. Uh, we are joined here with my podcasting partner, Kenny Coleman, and we've got Brian of Sippin' Corn, Blake, also known as Cal Rivkin of Bourboner, and Jordan from Breaking Bourbon, and of course our MC and master taster for Old Forester, Jackie Zykin. What's up, everybody? Yo. Final day. I mean, I don't know about you all. I think our age is starting to show. My back's already hurting. I don't know about you all. It's been a long few days. Well, last night, standing up uh, for a while hurt a little bit. But hey. Well, I'm wondering. Hey, Jackie, does yeah. being does being barefooted help you with the back and stuff? It does. It helps me ground in the center. Yeah, you know the barefoot the barefoot movement is real. I learned about this, and I these things are practically barefoot. So. Anyway, so we're at Bourbon and Beyond, and everybody up here has is on a panel or has been on the stage, uh, and we've all been moderators or an MC the whole time. And I just want to get a quick thought of what uh, what you've learned or what were some of your takeaways from your panels or what you've listened to. We'll start with you, Brian. Sure, I did the Whiskey's Dark Past, and the the amount of knowledge that we had from. Chris Morris and Bernie Lubbers and Susan Riegler was just amazing. You'd, I don't think you can get three more knowledgeable people on stage at once. Uh, and we focused on lawlessness. I, I sort of focus on the law, so it was the opposite of what I normally do. But uh, it was it was great and a great opportunity to have that. So thanks, Fred. What, what was a good, juicy story that came out of there? Well, I thought Chris was going to going to say that the prohibition style 1920 uh, evoked the lawlessness and he actually went the opposite direction and said Brown Foreman's focusing on law on them being within the law during prohibition and having one of the medicinal licenses um, so that was the one thing that surprised me but the the juiciest things I think came from 
Bernie and, and Susan about George Remus, and that's where you really get into the murders. You got a guy who goes to jail during Prohibition, gets out, murders his wife in front of everybody in Cincinnati, and gets off on one of the first uses of the insanity defense. So a lot of great stories on the lawlessness side of bourbon. That's what we consider a great story. Yeah. <laughs> one, one other thing is that Brown, Brown Foreman actually bought bourbon from George Remus uh, through his uh, secretary after he was in jail. So the government would allow people, would, they, they would seize the bootleggers' uh, barrels and then sell them back to distillers. So I think that this, the, uh, the government was really double-dipping back in Prohibition. Probably triple dipping. Triple they dipping. Would still, yep. They would tax it after that. So that's it's right. a third chance. So Blake, what have you what have you learned out here today? Yes, yeah, so last my, few days. My seminar is still to come this afternoon, so uh, you'll get to hear me twice today, which I'm sure is exciting. Um, but so it's going to be on sweet mash versus sour mash, and uh, we have Pat Heiss from Wilderness Trail, and then Caleb from Peerless. So um, I'm excited for that one. Uh, but you know, all the seminars have been great. I think there was a lot of uh, stuff that popped up in the master distiller panel on Friday, as well as the Van Winkle one. You know, that one um, definitely had a lot of cool details coming out of it. So it's been it's cool just to see people kind of up close in a little more laid back setting where give somebody some bourbon and uh, you don't always get the same PR answer as you may get in a normal. Um, you let the secrets start flowing. Yeah. That's what we want. Yeah. That's kind of really. That's kind of been my vision in curating these panels. Get people drunk and ask they, questions. Uh, yeah. they would free pours. <laughs> people talk, and, and you know, it, it, they're they're very different, uh, and you can't. Uh, it, it's it's not like a camera interview or anything like that. It's not to say that we're trying to get gotcha questions yeah, or anything, no. but you know, I the 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 distilleries don't always realize that their marketing goes against them because they don't let the real stories come out. And the real stories, to me, are always so much better. I'm curious, you, Blake, I didn't get to catch the Master Distiller one. Was there, a, was there a good, real story in there that really caught your attention? Um, you know, I think just the question was brought up about should there be like a union of Master Distillers or what does that really mean? And you hear them all, just kind of the respect. It's like, no, we don't need a union, but we don't want somebody just popping up and using the name as well. Like, Masters is just somebody who has all this experience. And then um, I think it was in this one, but the kind of the quote that stands out to me is Trip Simpson from uh, Barrel Bourbon. He says, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Like, you, you got to, as a master, you got to know the process from beginning to end. And it does, doesn't just stop at distillation or in the barrel. And so just, uh, you know, they have to oversee the entire process, which is interesting. And most of them say that the proof is in their whiskey. Yeah. Right. That's what they want yeah. to say. It, and uh, maybe they should also keep a shame list if they want to make sure that there's this list yeah. of people that take the name like this. Just all back backdoor kind of uh, <laughs> stories between them. Yeah. You emceed the what is a master distiller. I did. What was that like for you? It was good. You know, it's a, it's a good melting of minds of everybody that we would had on the podcast before to come up and, and kind of talk. But also in more of a laid back way, you know, for me, it wasn't more or less just getting answers out of them, but it was also seeing the crowd and kind of having them be, have an opportunity to be able to see like, oh, these are the people, like these are the stories behind the, the whiskey that they're drinking every single day. And I think for me, I love being able to see the, the crowd out here and be able to really harness and get 
some more of those inside details. I think that's really the coolest part because we're able to bring a lot of the information from really what's happening inside, kind of share that with the world, and they have an opportunity to really understand what goes on behind some of these doors that, you know, when Jackie's sitting here trying to taste and figure out, oh, what's this year's old force of birthday bourbon going to be like? You know, we can be able to share that, and that's really what the opportunity here is able to make that happen. Now, Jordan, I know you've been watching. You've got a panel today, right? Yeah, my panel is going to be right after this, so stick around. You got the uh, old-fashioned versus uh, Manhattan. I do, I do. And this is one where everyone's always asking me, like, what's your favorite cocktail? And, and there's this huge debate in, like, the bartending world of, of what is better for bourbon. Uh, is it the Old Fashioned or Manhattan? So where, where are you going to take this? What can we expect you? Where, are you going to push one way or the other? I don't know. You know, I think everyone really has their own favorite, right? Personal preference, both are great. But uh, I think there's going to be a lot of variation talks. There's you a lot how of... to toe that party line, yeah, doesn't it? He's making a hard push for vodka either. soda. <laughs> so that's going to be... <laughs> okay, listen. No more. This is the last mention of vodka on the stage. That's better. We all we know that. No, I'm, no, I'm Manhattan. No, no, no. Okay, no, no, no. Right, there okay, you go. That panel hasn't started yet, but I'm going to say this. Here's the line, I won't Jackie. be able to say this later. And I, I'm going to cross that line and back and forth multiple times today. But in my previous life, before being a part of the Old Forester team, I was a beverage director and I had to train bartenders across different states, across different bars, and I would always tell them what their Manhattan. So, and with any cocktail, you stir and you taste it to make sure your dilution's correct, right? You taste, you taste, you taste, until you get to the point with a Manhattan where it tastes like absolute shit, and then you did it right because that's a Manhattan. <laughs> wow. Wow. wow! We're starting There's today, y'all. Oh, there nice we go. All right, we'll talk today. There we go. Uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> This is fantastic. Catch, catch the duel behind stage here after this. Is and that concludes Old Fashioned versus Manhattan. Wow. So you've also been watching the seminars. What's caught your eye? Yeah, I think there's been, you know, this festival has been great. Great music, great talks. I think we had uh, Kenny, you're up here yesterday with Wes Anderson dropping some some knowledge about the forthcoming uh, Bottle and Bond Rye for Angels Envy. Uh, Angels Envy. And um, it's just been a great place to, you know, hear some music in the background. You're going to hear a lot of good influential bourbon things. But it's also one of the few festivals. Go back to the big bourbon tent, grab a bourbon. Master Stillers just walking around. They just want to say hi, grab a drink. It's awesome. It's uh, definitely one of the few places that you can see something like this. So I'm glad we're all here to experience that. Now, uh, the, uh, one of the panels I moderated was with the Van Winkle family. And they all, dropped... All the juicy secrets <laughs> oh, are they, It came out. They, um, of course, Preston Van Winkle said that they had hired lawyers and worked with Facebook to shut down the secondary market. What's everybody's take on that? How long is this panel? <laughs> no, We're not on the radar, are we? No, yeah. I'll jump in. Um, it's something we've discussed a lot, and that was always kind of the rumor, you, you know, and not the rumor in... Um, but Buffalo Trace, Sazerac Company would always say, you know, they hated the secondary market and um, all this stuff. So to get the confirmation that, yeah, they're spending millions of dollars, um, I don't think, you know, we are in the bourbon, I always call it nerd world of people who talk way too much about it, but I don't think they like that, you know. Um, love it or hate the secondary market, it helped build a lot of these brands and build a lot of the hype and everything else. So then you're also attacking it at the same time. And I always go back to, if I can't find a bottle at retail, so my only option is just not to drink it at all because the supply is just so small compared to the demand at least you know you could have that secondary market and nobody likes flipping but it was a lot more than that well and i think people always assumed that they liked the secondary market because 
no one would buy Weller Special Reserve if it weren't for the secondary market and the hype, the artificial for hype sure. that's created. Well, I think it's important that we, we, we separate Sazerac from the Van Winkle family. I think, I, think, I think it's very important here because what I, what I took away from, uh, from that conversation yesterday, that they really felt the secondary market damaged them and they felt that they were, were, were victims of uh, retailers jacking the prices up and everything and they didn't have a solution other than go to the bar. But at the same time, Preston kept saying like, we're not the ones getting that money. We're not the ones getting that money. And, and then they brought up counterfeiting. So I think that was interesting, right? I think there was a little bit of, it was clear they wanted to get some of that money, but more so when you, you, know, when you read some of the blowback online today, it was a lot of folks were wondering, instead of spending the money on lawyers to shut down the secondary, put that money towards counterfeiting measures. Try and make bottles a little bit safer. It's going to take place no matter what. You might as well make it safer for the consumers that they know what they're getting is actually going to be the product they put out. Like, put your resources towards something that's going to do well for the consumer. Kitty, I've only, like, I haven't really been online to see what the response has been, other than, like, uh, who's tagged me on Twitter. But what's it, what's it been like? I know you track that stuff. Uh, within a uh, few hours after posting, I think we had almost 200 comments on the picture of, of people kind of giving their, their take on it. And, you know, I think... What Preston said and being able to go against counterfeiting is, is it's a real thing. If, if somebody actually tries to go out there, there's counterfeit bourbon on the market. Uh, people can buy foils from China and you can reseal them. You can do a lot of different stuff and, and they do that. Now, when I look at it, I thought the, the secondary market was healthy, um, but it's also become unhealthy. You know, if he says that we're trying to stop counterfeits and, you know, maybe that is one portion of it. and and. I think another part of saying he wants the money or somebody has to have that money. Well, at the end of the day, the way this is gonna work out, it's just the retailers are gonna make the money because if they're gonna be pricing it at secondary prices, they're the ones making the money. So I see potentially the future of how this could eventually shift is if the three-tier system has a rapid change and there's more direct from the manufacturer to the consumer market available. Yeah, but the retail industry is going to block that, and the wholesale industry will block that as much as they can. Um, one, one thing that I also you know, took away from, um, from the Van Winkles was how, how much anger there was toward this subject. I mean, I don't know if you could feel it, but I could feel... I could feel it coming off of Preston. I mean, it was 93 degrees out here yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> but he was, he was really, uh, and he, it's like he wanted to get that off of his chest. He really did. Which I, I'm sure they get a ton of blowback from all of that, of people mad that they can't find their bourbon. And then, you know, it's kind of the, the easy target is to say, oh, I can't find Pappy Van Winkle because the secondary market, you know, whether or not that's true, I'm sure they, you know, I'd be frustrated too. I just think it was probably, uh, you know, maybe not where they wanted to aim the anger uh, directly at the secondary market. I think there's a plug or a lot of other issues behind that than just reselling. Well, and you have to remember too, so Pappy's about to drop pretty soon in the coming weeks and months. So they, you know, they must be getting it constantly. When am I going to be able to find it? It's too expensive. And that just probably boils up right towards the fall. So that's all bubbling towards the top of their mind right now. And uh, it, was, it was just prime time for that to come out. Well, I'm very glad they came on the stage because, you know, they didn't have to. And, you know, they knew I was going uh, to... Did, I didn't share any of the questions with them, but they've been with me before and they know that I 
ask questions. So <laughs> you like to throw a few curveballs yeah. every once in a while. Uh, but uh, Preston did admit that he would probably commit a felony if he got in a room with a counterfeiter. And Kenny, we have an upcoming podcast with a with a uh, an admitted counterfeiter who was caught. Um, yeah, it's gonna be a juicy one. Yeah, it, it, you know. When, when we were having that conversation with Preston, that interview that we had with him just kept coming into my mind, you know, of like, of all the things that we saw in the secondary market on counterfeiting. Where do you think we are when it comes to counterfeiting? Is the secondary market going away help it or does it hurt it? I personally think it might hurt the efforts to stop counterfeiting because there's a pretty good little police force out there. And that's what I think most people don't understand if you're not deep into the bourbon world as we are, that there are pockets of people that this is what they spend their time and their hobby doing is actually chasing counterfeits. Now, they're no part of any legal entity or anything like that. Like, that's what they do. They love to be able to shop around on eBay because if you can go on eBay, you'll see empty bottles of Pappy Van Winkle that you can buy. Nobody's buying bottles for $50 to make lamps out of them. I'm sorry, right? They're not doing that, right? They're, they're going away with the purpose. And so what you can do is they spend the time tracking those serial numbers and seeing where they end up. And then they go and basically flame those people that end up trying to sell them at some point, right? And they try to trace it back and figure out exactly where the root actually came from. So there is a, there's already a good self-policing community that's already with inside of Bourbon today. So Julian, after the seminar was over, he pulled out a po- big friggin' pocket knife on stage and started cutting the labels. And he's like, this is how we prevent it. And I was like, how the hell did you get that through security? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I think, I think this is, is going to influence our, our kind of uh, our little community, you know, quite a bit. And uh, for them to come out publicly that they helped shut it down was really something. Another thing that was a first. This this was the first uh, public appearance of Marianne Eves uh, since she had left uh, Castle and Key. Did any anybody uh, catch her or talk to her while she was on stage? I got to talk to her back behind here a little bit. It seems like everything's going great. She's got an upcoming TED Talk, which is amazing, right? I mean, I think being able to have that honor uh, is, is a, it's an incredible experience and, you know, happy for her and be able to do that and you know i think we're all excited to kind of just see what happens next and she's had some great experience since she left with with rum and tequila and and traveling around and and i think we'll see her in a lot of different places in the future and of course she's a a round table alum so we're always rooting for marianne so i got a question for you all so we got a we got some people out here and you know we were actually there was when we had the van winkle thing out there there was the uh, we sampled 15 year Right? It was an amazing opportunity, amazing experience. Now, not everybody's going to be able to get that opportunity, right? So let's go ahead and everybody can kind of give a, uh, if you can't get Pappy, what's the next best bourbon that you can drink? There's always those articles that come out and they say, here's, here's, top, here's five bourbons better than Pappy. Are so, we talking accessible bourbons? <laughs> yes. Let's, okay. let's do that for, for the crowd and, okay. and for people that that think that they want to try it, but they might want some, some steps to be able to like, get down that path. So it's, it's only in six markets, so maybe that doesn't make it completely accessible, but for those of you who are here from out of state, Kentucky is one of the markets. 
Four Roses has a new uh, small batch select, is what they call it. It's 104 proof. It's about fifty dollars. Um, it's I, I think it's my top new bourbon of the year. Um, you should be able to find it in in again these six markets. It competes with some really tough bourbons. My maybe one of my second favorites is Old Forester 1920, which what? is a higher proof than than that. Um, so you've you really got to go to which profile you prefer. But if you haven't had the small batch select yet, that's what I'd go for. Yeah, I think it's you know it's a pretty tough comparison because when we're talking about weeded bourbons with a lot of age on it, there's just not much on the market that compares or is anywhere near available. Um, but one I would suggest is Wilderness Trail actually has a weeded bourbon that they're releasing, and it's you know obviously on the age there's it's not even close because I think they're they're bottling around four four to five years but um we were there the other day and it, really great product so if you need a weeded bourbon and looking for something a little higher proof I, i'd say give wilderness trail a try i think you also because you made poor man's pappy famous so you've <laughs> got to talk about really what does it make or what what are the components of, of poor man's pappy and then uh and can you yeah. even find those components and anymore? no that, that's, that's the thing that's you can't even make where the ninja them. comes in yeah yeah so um so this was, I wrote a blog post probably, I think it was around 2013, about the poor man's pappy. I don't know if I came up with the actual name. I'm pretty sure I did, but I definitely stole the blend from somebody else and put my own name on it. But it's just 60 part, or 60% Weller 12. Uh, weren't we just talking about counterfeiting? <laughs> yeah. You can't honest, trademark a blend. <laughs> no, so it's a, it's a blend of 60% uh, Weller 12 and 40% Weller Antique. And, you know, you get somewhere around that 10-year mark and around the 107 proof, or excuse me, uh, 100 yeah, proof, yeah, yeah, around there. whatever it is. I, I need to look at the article. But so then, um, you have to refer to your kinda, own stuff all the yeah, time. I, yeah, I try to take things a step. It, people don't get it. It's really hard to remember your own writing sometimes. It is. You know? <laughs> so taking a step nerdier is I put a blind tasting together of the, you know, a fresh. Pappy or um, you know fake Pappy soak, and then you know Weller 12 real Pappy, and then a version that I put in a blend tech and blended up. And every single time I've done this, the blended bourbon, like literal blended bourbon, has won the uh, the blind tasting. So I don't know what it is, the aeration, whatever it is. You know, I also stole that from a the master taster is saying yeah. yes. It's kinda, the aeration. Talk about what does aeration do to it because I. It was funny because we had a, a blind taste off, and I think you sent us ten samples, and we were all like, "Damn, this is really good!" And then you pulled it out, and it was literally like from a ninja blender. Uh, he had bourbon in it. So if you want a four thousand gallon ninja blender, we need yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So um, some of my favorite barrels in the warehouse are actually the lowest yield barrels because they've had so much headspace, so much airspace in there. And there are some arguments out there that once you've gone through the distillation process, your liquid in and of itself has been oxidized to the point that it could ever be oxidized after going through all of the industrial process. Once you get into the barrel, though, what they're not taking into consideration is the extraction of different compounds from that actual wood and creating new compounds that can then also be oxidized. So I love the low-yield barrels. If I could just mingle all the low-yield barrels together into a blend, which may or may not be coming soon, one day. <laughs> but first. that's exactly what's going yeah. on. So the same way that you would decant a really heavy tannic red wine to soften out that tannin, it's the exact same thing that's going on when you're going through a blender at home with your friends. <laughs> By the way, I just want to say something about Jackie. She's a champion for the people when it comes to whiskey. 
my pick for like one of the one of the, the every it's not a bourbon it's a rye it's the old forester rye I'm just in love with the old forester rye right now and I would buy that uh, I do I buy cases regularly unfortunately um, <laughs> and that uh, like a horrible problem <laughs> I have an old forester rye problem uh, but one of the things that's really cool about that rye whiskey is it's twenty three dollars and her management wanted to actually make it be like double or triple the price, right? And she fought for it to be $23. Like, she like intimidated presidents and vice presidents of Brown Foreman to keep it at $23. Not that scary. (laughs) No, but I think it's very important. But isn't that awesome? The Isn't mafioso or the mafiesa of, uh, of Old Forester over the here. Mafiesa? Jackie oh, will straight gosh. cut you. Mafiesa. No, I will not. I'm not a violent person. <laughs> I'm not. Um, no, but I think it's very important for us to stand strong as a brand that has always long been known as the sort of like really great quality product, but doesn't have to be a fuss about it. So Old Forester is known as like one of the best banks for your buck. And we need to stay consistent with that regardless of what the trends are doing. So. And it's Louisville's house bourbon for those who aren't from around here. That's what we call it. Yeah, but thank you for keeping it at 23 bucks, Jordan, I don't think you got a chance to no, say no, which one so, you would pick. Not because Jackie's here, but, you know, we get that question <laughs> a lot from a lot of people. And in terms of just available bourbons, we often recommend 1920. It's, uh, you know, it's about 60 bucks, give or take, right? Right around there. And uh, you can usually find it in the stores, and people just tend to love it. So it's one that, you know, we tend to stock up on in Breaking Bourbon and introduce a lot of people to. And, um, it, you know, it's great. But really what we always tell people, too, is, Pappy's going to be what you make a Pappy, right? So if you have a bourbon that you absolutely love, just stick with it. There's nothing wrong with that. Buy what you love, drink what you love, and, and don't let anyone else tell you what's going to be better. Until the damn brands change it, like lower the age statement or well, until uh, that takes place. you know use uh, lesser quality barrels for something else. Ah, oh, God, that pisses me off. <laughs> I hate it when they do that. We're, I know, we could have a whole grind your gears. I know. Here, <laughs> We're never getting off the stage. Session. We're just going to be here. <laughs> I'm Kenny Coleman, and this is Grind Your Gears. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'll kind of give my, my take on that as well, because, you know, I think uh, we had talked about some weeded bourbons and stuff like that. I'm a big fan of the, of the Makers 46 uh, private select program. The fact that there are a thousand and one different combinations of what's out there, meaning that you can go to a lot of different stores, you can sample a lot of different ones, and they have a lot of different varying profiles. Uh, the one that Larry had brought in here uh, yesterday, and, and I think most of us can say that today it is probably the only bourbon that's out there that can probably come close to tasting uh, dusty-ish, right? So anybody that's unfamiliar, dusty, it's you know, 70s, 80s, it's got a tax stamp on it. Nobody knows why it has this kind of flavor profile to it. Jackie hates it. We've been down this road before. Most of us up here enjoy it. Uh, however, I think that the Makers 46 Private Select Program gives uh, any, any consumer out there the opportunity to try something in a weeded Mashville but have a lot of varying differences because they have all the different flavoring staves. That's a great pick. And unfortunately, we're coming to the to the end what? of our roundtable. Oh, here we go. Uh, no one cares about we Jackie's know. opinion. Well, okay, okay, but you have to pick outside of Old Forester. And I'm not going to Ooh. because it is the 1920. <laughs> it is. So, in fairness, I drank the least of the 1920 because I drink barrel strength for a job on such a regular basis that I got to be kind to my liver. However, the mm, 1920... Humble brag. <laughs> no, it is when it's a job. Like, hey, whatever. It's, it's, it's not, it's not bragging if it's, it's true, not. Kenny. It's just what it is. Don't be Muhammad jealous. Muhammad Ali Don't said that. Um, but the 1920 is... 
a very unique higher proof expression in that it actually holds balance as you dilute through it. So even if you're not a high proof drinker, you can adjust it accordingly to where you want it to taste best at. There's a lot of high proof whiskeys on the market that once you start watering it back, they fall apart or defects start That's to come so to true. fruition. Yes. A lot of distilleries will hide um, subpar barrels, like you were saying. They start putting someone like the, ah, just throw it in there, um, in some of these high proof blends because you cannot discern defects at high alcohol concentrations. Boom. So, now you have to pick something outside Old Forester. Mm. Got to do it. I once did the single barrel pick from Four Roses. It was a barrel strength single barrel pick. It was with Doc Rose before okay. I took this job. And it had the best cordial cherry, amazing flavor profile. It was exquisite. It was super, super low proof. It was tucked away in a nice cool spot. It's the Hunter S. Thompson single barrel if you guys go into Doc's and, and try one. But... I have a case it, of it at home. Is it laced with LSD? No. <laughs> Be cooler if it was. <laughs> so we've got to start getting ready for the next panel, but as we do that, let, let's go ahead and uh, tell everybody where to find you. Like social media. <laughs> I'll start first. Uh, so Bourbon Pursuit, uh, so you can find us. We are a weekly podcast. You can download, open up your, your phone, open up the, uh, your, your podcasting app, type in the word bourbon. We'll probably be up there in the top results. Go ahead and subscribe. It's a weekly release, and we have Tuesdays. We come out with a 60-second whiskey review as well. Uh, we talk about everything from having people like Jackie on the shows, multiple-time alumni. We've had uh, master distillers. We talk about bourbon culture, such as topics like today. Uh, and most of these guys are, are always regulars on it, too. So it's, it's always fantastic. Yeah, so Jordan from Breaking Bourbon. You can find us uh, at Breaking Bourbon or BreakingBourbon.com. We are the leading resource for whiskey reviews and uh, bottle release calendars. Yeah, I'm Blake from Bourboner. That's B-O-U-R-B-O-N-R. -B I got made fun of last night by Lauren, who has to edit this because of how I spell out the name every time. So I want to throw that out there. But yeah, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just look for Bourboner. <laughs> and I'm Brian with Sippin' Corn. You can find me. The, the blog name is Sippin' Corn. Uh, also, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and also you search for bourbonjustice.com, and you'll go to my website as well. Bourbon Justice. <laughs> so I'm the curator of the festival and uh, editor-in-chief of Bourbon Plus magazine and proud co-host on Bourbon Pursuit. But uh, this is, a, to me, this is the future of like uh, whiskey media. I invited these, everyone up here because uh, I appreciate what they're doing to continue the whiskey education, which is often lacking. And uh, so I, I've been uh, trying to use uh, Bourbon and Beyond as a way to, to help some, some, some great minds in whiskey share their knowledge. What? How do you find me? Yeah. Well, darling, you can find me emceeing this stage for the rest of the day. Other than that, pop down to the old Forester Distillery. Sometimes I'm there. Sometimes I'm, I don't know, somewhere else. Um, but you can find me on Instagram at, at Jackie Zyken and uh, peek into my personal That's life. That's Zyken, like hiking. Hey, hey. And you know, I cannot believe I, you know, I just you straight totally skipped just you. You skipped me. That was very rude That's of okay. me. That's okay. You're going to get sick of hearing from me by the end of today. Jackie's the best, everybody. Thank you all so much for coming. Have a wonderful day. Cheers, Thanks, everyone. <laughs>